Montebello Church Sermons. Well, hello. Thanks for stopping by. First thing I want to do, though, is to apologize for the condition of my office. It's a bit of a mess. Maybe you don't know, but Jody and I are going to be moving. We're downsizing, and we're going to build a an apartment up where our son and daughter, son-in-law and daughter live up in Hawkinson. And consequently, nearly everything has moved out and the place looks like a disaster. Uh, part of the process of that move is going to be Jody and I, I want you to try to imagine this. We're going to be living for the next several months in a 25-foot trailer while we do the building. And all I can tell you is, I don't think I am made for towing a 25-foot trailer. We towed it from where we got it to where it's parked right now at my son's place. And all I can say is that was an experience that was nearly, well, let's just say I was, I felt about as nervous as a retired kamikaze pilot. So if you know how to pull a 25-foot trailer and might be willing to do so, please get in touch with me and that might help me uh, keep the anxiety at bay. In the meantime, things look like this. And so in the interest of being at least somewhat attentive uh, to uh, interior design, I thought since you were kind enough to stop by, I would go ahead and uh, address some of the issues of decor. So um, this is decor. There we go. Let's get started with Luke chapter 10. Now, this is part of the Awakening series, as you are likely aware. And this particular message was supposed to be, Awaken us to God's purpose for us. So, I was delighted when I found out that the passage that was related to that topic was Luke chapter 10, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And I'll explain to you why in a little bit. But let's just go ahead and get down to it. I want to read to you the first verse or two because that's as far as we're going to get before we need to stop. You ready? Okay, here we go. Verse 10, I mean chapter 10, verse 1, starts out this way. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them two and two ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. Time out. Stop. We don't get past the first three words. Now, after this. Doesn't that just beg the question? Now, after what? So apparently, there's something that has come before that we need to be aware of. Now, just a little background on the book of Luke. What we call the book of Luke was really a document that was prepared by Luke, an educated uh, kind of physician at the time, and he was sending it to somebody by the name of Theophilus, a person about whom we know almost nothing. But anyway, it's, it's a longer document, which wasn't divided into chapters and verses. I'm pretty sure that you're aware of that. So he did make reference, however, earlier in what we call chapter 9. So let's just go ahead and go back to chapter 9, and I'm going to read to you some of the subheadings that are listed in my Bible, just so we know what's transpired before before chapter 10 opens up. In chapter 9, it says, oh, there was the ministry of the 12. 5,000 people were fed with some loaves and some fishes. There was the transfiguration. You remember that? That was, that was where Jesus had a supernatural encounter with Elijah and Moses on the top of a mountain. When they came down, then there was an exorcism. There was somebody that was demon-possessed, so that happened. 
Then the disciples started arguing about who was the greatest. And all of that happened. But I think we hit pay dirt when we look at verses 51 and 52 in what we call chapter 9. Let me go ahead and read that to you. In verse 51, Luke comments this way. He says, It came about when the days were approaching for his ascension that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. Let's just stop there. So when Luke mentions to Theophilus that after this the Lord did something, that's probably what he's referring to. See, the reality is Jesus understood from dialogues with his father in prayer that his ministry on earth was nearly at an end. Uh, his trajectory was going to lead him ultimately to Jerusalem, where he knew that he was going to be rejected by the religious establishment and eventually turned over to the Romans, killed. And so he knew he was going to, going to die, that there was a resurrection and an ascension. All of that he knew that his disciples didn't. But in preparation for that event, you know, he knew that he was on the last lap of his journey. And he was headed for Jerusalem. But in the meantime, between where he was at that moment and, his, and that ultimate result of him going to Jerusalem, he had some work to do. And so that's why it says, After this the Lord appointed seventy others and sent them two and two ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. A couple of things to note. Apparently Jesus knew exactly where he was going. He had an itinerary. This wasn't just kind of a random thing where he's bouncing around Israel and just happens to wander into a city. Apparently, he had a place where he, places that he absolutely needed to go. And since Jesus has told us before that he didn't do anything that he hadn't heard his father say to do, we can assume that the itinerary was uh, agreed upon between Jesus and his heavenly father. So Jesus assembles, apparently... 70 people. Now, I have to say something here. There is There are other translations that say 72. Now, why is that? I don't know. A lot of the biblical scholars don't know either. There is some speculation that maybe whoever was doing the transcribing got it wrong somehow, or maybe there were... We don't really know. We can take a guess. But this much we do know. There were at least 70 people that Jesus apparently divided up into pairs and was going to send them on ahead to specific towns and villages where he was going to preach. Now, that means that apparently on that list, that itinerary, were somewhere around 35 cities or places that Jesus had in mind to go. Now, not all of them were going to expect, were, were going to receive him. Some of them were going to reject him outright. Remember what we just read in chapter 9, in verse 52, they sent a group of people. They sent a couple of people into a Samaritan village. And the, the village didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus because he's headed for Jerusalem. Because, you know, there was an ongoing dispute between the Samaritans and, between, and the Jews about where was the proper place to worship God. The Samaritans said there was a mountain in their territory where God ought to be worshipped. And the Jews said, no, it was in Israel. If you remember, Jesus had a little discussion with the, a certain woman at the well. Do you remember that encounter where, where she decides to ask Jesus to settle the dispute where they ought to worship? 
And Jesus said, now you need to worship in spirit and in truth. However, salvation does come from the Jews. That's what he told her. So anyway, that's why that one village rejected him. And apparently some of the other villages that Jesus was going to send them to was going to reject them as well. Now, I got to tell you something. I don't want to be rejected. Do you? Pretty much, I want to be accepted. And so this idea of being sent out with the, with the understanding that some of the places or the place that I'm going to be sent, sent to might not receive me, that wouldn't, have, that wouldn't have appealed to me very much. Were I one of a pair of people, if you and I, say, for example, were one of the advanced teams that were going, I wouldn't like the prospect of being uh, rejected by whatever village I went to. But Jesus tells us that that is indeed possible, that we might be rejected. More than that, let's just go ahead. I'm going to skip a little bit ahead here. It says, go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Okay, you and I are an advanced team. And we just hear the master say, I'm sending you out to various cities. And by the way, it's going to be like you guys are lambs and you're going to go out in the midst of wolves. Now, what that sounds to me like is that he's about ready to feed us to a, a wild animal. I don't think that's what he was getting at. I think what he was saying was that as lambs, he was our shepherd. And our fundamental attitude towards everything that we do, towards our purpose, needed to be more lamb-like than wolf-like. And while the rest of the world would, might be hostile, our attitude would always need to be reflective of what it was like to be part of the flock of the Lord Jesus. So that's probably what that was all about, which I'm grateful to know because, like I said, I wouldn't want to be wolf bait to anybody. So, but as he's sending them out, he sends them out two by two. Now that, I think, is significant. I don't know if you've paid attention, but how often... Multiple people are referenced when they are carrying the message of the gospel. Jesus rarely sends anyone out as an individual. Now, Philip, when he went down to, uh, into the, to the, south, the south road and encountered the Ethiopian eunuch, seems to be an exception. But most of the places where there are mentioned people uh, performing ministry or carrying the gospel of the kingdom... It's always, you, and, and at least in pairs, Paul in later years also matches that up. And I don't know whether you noticed, but in the selecting of the disciples, if you visit uh, Luke chapter 6, when Jesus chooses the 12, have you ever noticed that he mentions them in pairs? Andrew and Simon, James, John. Philip, Bartholomew, they're always linked together in pairs. And here Jesus once again sends them out in twos. I want to send you out two by two to the various places where I'm going. Now I want to stop here because a lot of times when we just do a Bible study like we're doing today, this, this, is, this is really all we're up to. We're just studying this passage of Scripture. But a lot of times we'll read the Bible and we'll say, okay, that's our religious duty. We've done a little Bible reading. I did my, did my scripture for the day. And then we leave it and we go. 
But here in Luke chapter 10, verse 1, there is something that I think calls us to action. When he sends them out two by two, I think maybe we can take a clue from that. Maybe what we need to do is link up with other people and harness the power of relationship in the delivery of the message of the kingdom of God. So here's what I'm going to propose. Let's lift out of verse 1 this concept of linking up with another person. Another person with whom to be in, as much as possible, daily contact. Let's call them a church of two. CO2. Because you can't have church just by yourself. I don't know if you ever noticed Jesus' commandment to his disciples. A new commandment, I say, I give unto you, he said in John 13. And that commandment is love one another. Now, question. Can you fulfill that commandment by yourself? Hmm? If you don't have another to love, you cannot fulfill the commandment that Jesus gave you. A new commandment, he said. Love one another. You need at least one other. So, here's my suggestion to you. Maybe even an assignment. Find someone with whom you can be in contact as near to daily as possible. Check in with each other. Explore together uh, what you are experiencing as followers of the Lord. And be honest with each other. Use what I call the tip principle. There are three things that need to be characteristic of the Church of Jesus Christ. One of those things is trust. You know, the world is looking for things that we can trust. I don't know if you've noticed, but it doesn't, doesn't seem like any of the, of the messages that we hear in this world right now are trustworthy. But one of the qualities that needs to be present within the context of the body of Christ is this issue of trust. So trust is the, is the first. Second, integrity. As you are interacting with another person on a regular basis, make sure that you're being a person of integrity. Are you representing yourself as you are? Because it really doesn't help for us to put on some kind of facade. I don't know if you noticed, but if, if you never reveal any of your own weaknesses, that's basically saying, I've got it all together and I really don't need you. I'm not going to tell you what my weaknesses are. And so, essentially, that's rejecting the need for another person. So, trust, integrity, and patience. Has it occurred to you that uh, we're, none of us have arrived? A long time ago, we used to wear little buttons that, that had, had the, the first initials, P, P, B, P. I don't know what they were, but basically they stood for, please be patient with me. God is not finished with me yet. Well, patience is an important part of being the body of Christ. And particularly, as you explore this principle of churches of two, those three qualities are going to be important. Trust, integrity, patience. Now, who, who could you have as a partner in this ministry of the kingdom? Well, if you're married, I suppose it's a no-brainer. You have a spouse that you can be checking in with daily and exploring the, the level of trust and integrity and patience that exists. You know, that's a possibility. Sometimes, however, 
the people that we're closest to are the ones that uh, it's easy enough to, to get out of the habit, get out of the rhythm of praying with each other or checking in with each other. I might recommend that not only your, your spouse would be a good bet, but someone else, a close friend, someone that you're willing to call nearly every day, someone that you could text with, someone uh, that maybe you could even, you can visit with in some kind of way, but be that church of two. And there's a there's something else that I'm going to follow up with here in just a little bit. But I just, uh, just wanted to encourage you uh, in that direction because this is what the body of Christ is all about. It's about relationship. It's about loving one another. And it's about harnessing the positive relationship among us that is present because of the Holy Spirit among us as well. All right. Now, verse 2. And he was saying this, and I'm going to go ahead and read several verses ahead, and then we'll kind of come back on them a little bit. But the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the, his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no bag, no shoes, not I think that means an extra pair. They're not supposed to go barefoot. After all, they're supposed to be able to shake the dust off their sandals <laughs> a little later on. It'd be difficult to do if they were, they were barefoot. So anyway, no extra shoes. And greet no one on the way. And whatever house that you enter, first say, peace be to this house. Shalom. Um, Peace be into this house, and if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him, and if not, it'll return to you. And stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Make note of that. Do not keep moving from house to house. In whatever city you enter, and they receive you, eat what's set before you, and heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out of that city and say, even the dust that is of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. You know, I read that and I just realized, you know, you can, I guess, wipe the dust off of the, the bottom of your feet, even if you don't have sandals. Well, I'm not sure how important that whole part of the discussion is. But anyway, um, when we get to chapter 10, verse 2, we have now stopped talking about the missionaries or the workers. Now we're starting to talk about the mission. What's the mission? Well, the first thing you're doing when you go to whatever city Jesus has dispatched you to is you're looking for a man of peace. You're looking for someone who will be at peace with your message. And for them, this is the message of the gospel of the kingdom. You know, a lot of times we're used to the idea of sharing the gospel of salvation. You know, the idea of getting human beings, getting men and women out of the earth and into heaven, as though that were the most important thing. Well, I'm not saying that that's unimportant, but the fact is that's just a side, that's a side benefit. If you're coming into a relationship with Jesus, you're going to heaven. 
But the question is, what are you supposed to do in the meantime? Just pitch your tent at the foot of the cross and wait for the trumpet to sound. That's the way some people seem to look at it. But if you look at this message that Jesus is, is giving concerning the mission that they're going that they're going on, the mission is, is to remind people that they are representing the kingdom of God. It's the gospel of the kingdom. That's what they represent. They are representatives, ambassadors, if you will, of the kingdom of God. And I think that it's very interesting when Jesus says, uh, if there, you encounter somebody that's sick and you lay hands on them and you heal them, make sure you tell them, kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's part of the transaction. It's part of a sign. You see, what's going on when we minister in that way is you're seeing a little bit of what's normal in the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever thought of that? Look at all of the things that Jesus did. Whenever he fed the 5,000, basically he's sharing what's normal in the kingdom of heaven. Nothing is lacking in the kingdom of heaven. When he delivers somebody from demon possession, there's no such thing as demon possession in the kingdom of heaven. When he raises people from the dead, there's no such thing as death in the kingdom of heaven. It's almost as though he's, he's shaking, he's just kind of moving a chalice that's filled with the wine of the kingdom, and every once in a while it sloshes over. And what's normal for the kingdom of heaven, life and health and all of the rest of it, touches down and touches the people here on earth. And Jesus is telling his disciples that that privilege has also been given to them. When you touch someone and they are healed, remind them that what they are experiencing is what's normal for the kingdom of heaven. Now, I wish I could tell you that everybody I ever touched and prayed for who, for healing uh, received a miraculous, spectacular healing right there on the spot. I can't tell you that. But what I can tell you is that Jesus has given us a lot of information about what's normal for the kingdom of heaven. Love is normal for the kingdom of heaven. Grace is normal for the kingdom of heaven. Name a lot of the values for, that are, are common to the kingdom of heaven, and you can recognize that we can live those out. We can live those out in our encounters with people here on earth. That's what Jesus did in his entire ministry. He took from the things of heaven and he manifested them and delivered them to the people of earth. This is why when he, when he taught his disciples to pray, he said, pray this way, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he has given these pairs of people the responsibility of taking what's normal for the kingdom of heaven and delivering it to those people that they encounter in the cities that he's about ready to visit. See, if they whet their appetite, if the workers whet their appetite for the things of the kingdom of heaven, when Jesus comes and delivers them the message of the, of the kingdom and declaring the coming of the kingdom, they will, they will be ready to hear him. All right. I already mentioned that uh, sometimes people will reject uh, what the message is, and that's, that's unfortunate. <laughs> but there's another thing that I wanted to point out to you, and I, let's go ahead and, and double back 
and look at verse 7. Basically, what, he, what Jesus says is that uh, when you come into some, somebody's house, eat what and drink what's set before you. But notice what he says. For the laborer is worthy of his hire. Now, he calls these people that he sent out laborers into the harvest. Okay? But now let's go back to chapter 10, verse 2, where Jesus gives them a responsibility. He says, The harvest is plentiful, and the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech, says a New American Standard, many, many translations say ask, ask the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest. And then in verse 7, we find out that they're laborers. So basically, what he's telling them to do is, as laborers, pray for laborers. Hmm. So it appears as though the harvest can become workers in the harvest. And I think that kind of gives us a glimpse of what God is up to in terms of what his perspective is about bringing people into an encounter with him and an encounter with the kingdom. I'm going to talk more about that in a couple of weeks uh, when in the series it's uh, awakening us to God's perspective. But for this moment, I want to point out something about chapter 10, verse 2. He says, Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. He's asking his listeners to pray, isn't he? What's he asking him to pray for? Laborers to be sent out into the harvest. So he's asking the laborers to send out more laborers into the harvest. Now here's my question. Do you think that Jesus would have instructed his disciples to pray for something that he knew his heavenly Father was not inclined to give? Would Jesus ask his disciples to pray for something that he knew his father was going to say no to? I think the answer to the question is pretty plain. He was asking them to pray for something that he knew full well his heavenly father was willing to grant. The answer to the prayer is not in question. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers into the harvest, and the answer will be, yes, I will. So the question isn't whether or not God wants to answer the prayer. The question is, will we pray the prayer? Will we pray that the Lord of the harvest will send workers out into the harvest? And this is where we take this passage of Scripture out of, out of paper or off of a screen and say, so what are you going to do about it? Are you going to pray that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers into the harvest? Are you going to pray Luke 10, 2b? Or are we just going to shrug our shoulders and say, well, that was an interesting Bible study. But there's no reason why we can't do exactly what Jesus has instructed his disciples to do. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send workers out into the harvest. And that, brothers and sisters, can bring us back to verse 1, where Jesus put them together in groups of two. You want to know something else that you can do in your church of two? Commit together, one another, to 
pray that the Lord of the harvest will send workers out into the harvest. Why is that important? Let's go back to the book of Matthew. I'm going to go ahead and turn there. Uh, you can just jot it down if you want to. But here's in Luke 10, chapter 19 and 20. I'm sorry, Mark. Excuse me. I'll get to it eventually. Matthew. Matthew 9. <laughs> Matthew 18, verse 19 and 20. All right. Let me say that again. Matthew 18, verses 19 and 20. Listen to what Jesus tells his disciples. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that, that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For when two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Did you hear that? I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them. Okay, so we've got two levels in this church of two responsibility. First of all, we have a prayer that God fully intends to answer if we'll pray it. And second, we have a prayer that's empowered by the linking together of two people for the purpose of the prayer. Say so, so here's, I think I'm just going to go ahead and stop here at this point. Here's what the Lord has called us to do based on Luke 10. Let's use Luke 10 as an encouragement to link up with someone else, maybe more than, more than one person. Maybe you can be a part of several churches of two. Let's create churches of two all throughout the congregation who are willing to get together and talk and be in, in a, in an, and evaluate one another's uh, relationship with the Lord and with each other, help one another, pray for each other. But also, let's be diligent about praying that Luke 10 2b prayer. And if we do that together, I'm going to guess that we're going to see some pretty remarkable things based on what we have come to know about God's purpose for us. He's waking us up to a church of two and the prayer of the Luke 10 2b prayer for, for workers in the harvest. I'm going to go ahead and pray as we finish. Lord, I don't know how effective I've been at being able to encourage my brothers and sisters to be uh, diligent to link up with others and pray. But Lord, I ask that by your Spirit, you would empower us. You would empower us to respond, that you would join us together, that you would answer the prayer which you've promised that you would answer. Lord, help us to be diligent and help us to be responsible. Amen. Thanks for being with me. I'll uh, follow up on some of this in a couple of weeks when we talk about God's uh, perspective. Bye-bye. Montebello Church Sermons.